For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. This is the Pro Football Doc Podcast with Dr. David Chow. As a practicing orthopedic surgeon who's performed hundreds of procedures on NFL players and as the former longtime head team physician for the San Diego Chargers, Dr. Chow uses his insider knowledge to decipher injuries to a documented 95% accuracy level. He's the Sirius XM sports medical analyst and is quoted everywhere from Sports Center to NFL Live. More than 100,000 followers can't be wrong. And following him on Twitter, looking for his instant insights on injuries during games. Now, Dr. David Chow, the pro football doc. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another pro football doc podcast. We're uh, week four is uh, done here. We're into week five. And uh, welcome again this week. We have a good special guest, Brady Quinn. Look forward to talking to him about the league quarterbacks and quarterback injuries. But in the meantime, let's bring in our executive producer here, Greg Peterson. Greg, welcome to the show. Dr. Chow, it is always a pleasure to be with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I went, uh, spent the weekend in South Carolina, went to my first SEC football game. Oh, very nice. South Carolina versus Kentucky. Correct. 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 It was interesting. I mean, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, hook up with some people. They were super nice. I was there visiting my daughter, who's a freshman there, and uh, brought the circus with me, the six-year-old twins and the two-year-old. These people were nice enough to host me at their little tailgate, and it was air-conditioned. It was nice. It was on a balcony right across from the stadium. Uh, And, uh, you know, what was crazy is I never seen anything like this. From this balcony, as far as I could see, all these red and black tents and garnet or red and black garnet and black tents and South Carolina gear everywhere. It was cool. But two things impressed me the most, the dichotomy. Literally right next door, there was a gas station that was closed. The bathrooms were open. The food sales were open. But the where you pump gas there was no gas being pumped. It was closed. Wow. It was all sold as tailgate spots. <laughs> I mean, literally, it's like, you know, 100 feet from the stadium. But the gas station, and we all know how expensive gas is, was closed because it was a parking lot for tailgaters. I thought that was an interesting site. And literally right next door to the gas station, was a Anheuser-Busch or Budweiser something warehouse of some sort with a small parking lot. And there were helicopters dropping people off in that lot. I mean, it's not that big of a lot. I mean, in California, they would have found that illegal or something. But since it had something to do with the game, I saw a helicopter make two or three runs back and forth bringing people in. So you have a helicopter impromptu landing pad next to a gas station that is closed because of the spots being sold as tailgate spots. So it was an interesting time. It was fun. South Carolina won. All good. 
I thought that Wisconsin was very unique whenever they had Packers games. I've never seen a landing spot for a helicopters or a gas station not pumping gas. <laughs> well, Green Bay's cool. I mean, you get, I mean, it's in the middle of everywhere, middle of the, the houses, right? I mean, how can Green Bay, there aren't gas stations next to the stadium, at least that I exactly. saw. Exactly. There are actually a bunch uh, of residential areas, and then you do pay some of these people to park on their lawn and everything like that. So it's a little bit similar. It's not quite to that extreme, though. No, I, I mean, I, I love looking at stuff like that. But on to the podcast uh, for the week here. Segment one, we try and cover a couple of uh, interesting topics before our guest. Segment three, we'll do the rundown. And we've got a good beast of the week uh, this week here. But to start here, let's talk about TJ Hawkinson and how he tried to jump and leave his feet. And then he in midair, basically got hogtied and, and slammed down. Did you see that play, Greg? What did you think about that? I actually was not really watching that game. I was going from game to game to game, and I didn't necessarily see the hits. So give us a little bit of a rundown of it. Well, he was doing the old sports center. I'm going to jump over the defender. He didn't make it over the defender. The defender stood up and uh, basically uh, got him at the legs and then dumped him on his head and shoulder. And he ended up with a concussion. Thankfully, nothing with the shoulder or, or collarbone. But, you know, my whole thing is this. I mean, more and more, we're seeing people jump. And yeah, this is why traditionally you're told not to leave your feet. Historically, it was Walter Payton on a goal line going over the top or LaDainian Tomlinson going over the top, right? I think those are okay ways to leave your feet. But in the field of play to hurdle a player, and I, to me, there's a couple reasons why that happen, happens. Number one, you know, as defenders crouch down and lower their target area, no more head hunting, more waist and lower, you're able to jump over guys. And number two, and I don't leave this out, this is clearly something that players see. I call it sports center effect. And there's a, it, we've talked about it some before in many different sports. In basketball, every kid, every player in the U.S. wants to hit a three and be Steph Curry or dunk like LeBron. Mid-range jumpers don't exist anymore in our game, 12, 15-footers. In baseball, right, I mean, obviously home runs, but everyone wants a diver. Look, I'm old enough when I grew up or, and even when I was a, an adult, it was outfielders caught balls with try to get a jump on the ball, run under the ball, and catch it with two hands. Now everything's one hand and everything's a diver. It feels like players almost get a slow jump to time it out so they can close the last two steps and dive and make the uh, the uh, the sports center uh, highlight catch. And kids, uh, I've got a son who's starting to play some baseball. He's six. And even him, like, they want divers. You know, they don't want to throw them to them. They want to make that spectacular whatever. Well, my son's still working on catching a regular ball, so but he still sees that. And and look, if TJ Hawkinson jumps over the defender, he's on Sports Center. He's on highlight reels. He didn't make it. He's on highlight reels or low light reels for different reasons. But this is why it's always don't leave your feet. You're committed and you can't do anything. It is a play that is potentially dangerous. So don't mean to be a stick in the mud there, but that's why you don't try and hurdle players or, or leave your feet. Uh, also, high chance of turnovers, uh, et cetera, when, when 
when that happens. Uh, my guess is you don't really ever see and won't ever see any uh, New England Patriots players trying that because I'm sure it's drilled in just like you don't see any Patriots players lunging for the goal line from the one yard line. Uh, they're taught to the turnover isn't worth it, right? You fumble it out of the end zone and, and it's a touchback. Uh, just keep possession of it. Look, if you're going to get tackled in the open field, get tackled or make a move on the ground. Don't go in the air like that. But uh, hopefully TJ Hawkinson will be back uh, soon here and uh, will recover from his uh, concussion. Second topic here, um, Melvin Gordon made his return to the Chargers, and I thought it was interesting. I didn't understand. I don't know how many times we've said this, Greg. If from the outside something doesn't make sense, it's because we don't know the whole story, and the insiders do. So inside the Chargers building, I'm sure they had a good reason. But at first I was like, why are they going to suit up Melvin Gordon? He just got to got in on Thursday. He's had two days of practice, and you're going to really suit this guy up and play him. And then it was like he was activated and suited up, and by the end of the game, I was mad at myself for not figuring it out earlier. Of course Melvin Gordon was suited up. Of course the Chargers knew uh, that you risk soft tissue muscle injury if you really play Melvin Gordon. Of course they didn't want to. They're going to give him a little chance. And by the way, Melvin Gordon this next week will get ramped up and play and have some carries, but it'll be another week or two before he is really back to full load, etc. And Greg, here's why. Look at all the injuries the Chargers have had. Forget the fact that uh, Sean Culkin, their third tight end, now tore his Achilles. So they're down to their fourth tight end. Virgil Green was out. Hunter Henry still out with that bone bruise slash tibial plateau fracture. Then they have Russell Okung out with the pulmonary embolism. They have the foot refracture. Derwin James, their star safety. They have Adrian Phillips, his replacement, out with the broken arm. Justin Jackson, the running back with the calf. They have Mike Williams out with his knee issue. They have Travis Benjamin out. I know I'm forgetting some others as well. Out of the 53 on the active roster, the reason why Melvin Gordon suited up is he suited up as an emergency player because I don't think the Chargers had 46 others that they could suit up. That's why Melvin Gordon was suited up and didn't take a snap because they could suit up 46 and they didn't have anyone else to suit up. I mean, that's how banged up the Chargers are still. Now, a convincing win down in Miami, and it uh, looks like they're headed into play. Another somewhat beat up with the announcement of Bradley Chubb's ACL tear, and we'll get to that in the third segment here against the Broncos next week. But that totally made sense to me. And, of course, Gordon had no snaps, no carries, but he was suited up on the sideline. And uh, just in case of emergencies, in case they ran out of bodies. But they didn't have other, another 46 healthy, I don't think, to, to suit up. So at least that mystery is uh, sort of solved. And it might be one of those situations where you don't know who the emergency catcher is until you need the emergency catcher. <laughs> yeah, well, good news is at least they didn't need that. But boy, they yep. they continue to be quite banged up. Just when I thought they were turning the corner with their linebackers getting healthy uh, with Denzel Perriman, et cetera, then they hit the other way. And heck, uh, their kicker is still out and uh, on the active roster. And, and Ty Long, their punter, uh, almost hurt himself on a kickoff, it looked like, with a muscle strain. And the only good news there is their 
their punter became their kicker because they didn't need a punter. The Chargers didn't even punt the entire game. So any duties for Ty Long, their punter, were just kicking duties, kickoff, extra point, and field goal. But no uh, punting duties needed yesterday for the Chargers against the Dolphins. And finally, before we hit the break, I wanted to talk a little bit about the injury index, getting lots of questions. You guys are the loyal listeners, longtime followers. So I wanted to give you the insight on this. There's no charge if you sign up for this website, profootballdoc.com. There's no credit card. You put in your email, you put in your pet's name for the password or whatever it is, and you get all the additional features. And one of the features is injury index. And the injury index is a matchup-based grade in terms of not only offense versus defense, but pass offense versus pass defense. And I think it can be helpful as you make your fantasy decisions, DFS decisions. And if you're somewhere where wagering is legal, it can sort of help you. But let me explain. Let's just take the uh, Patriots versus Buffalo Bills. I am not saying who will win this game. I don't make any picks. I never make any picks. All I'm saying is let's look at the relative health of the two teams. And they were actually both fairly evenly matched in terms of health. I don't talk scheme. I don't talk skill level. I don't talk coaching. It's just, is this team really healthy so that whatever the actual expectations are for performance have a chance to be reached? Or is this team on paper a really good team, but they're banged up, and so you can't have all of the full expectations? So looking at the Patriots and the Bills, if you go to the profootballdoc.com from week four, what you see is both defenses were relatively healthy with A's and A-minuses on either side. Pass defense, run defense, overall defense, pretty healthy. And both offenses relatively banged up. Uh, Julian Edelman, who caught some balls but didn't do a ton, tied in for the Patriots, Sony Michelle always with his knee, a couple other minor wide receiver issues, offensive line issues for the Patriots. Meanwhile, the Bills, you know, did not expect Devin Singletary to play their number one running back. Tyler Croft's still out, and they've had a few other issues on their offensive line. So what does that set up to be? The offenses are not fully healthy on both sides, and the defenses are. Now, if you pair that with the Patriots have a pretty good defense and they're healthy, and the Bills have a pretty good defense and they're healthy, what does that give you? It's not perfect. I'm not giving picks. It's just, in theory, the defenses should be able to reach their potential and the offenses won't. And so you end up with a 16-10 to 10 game, and seven of those points were off a blocked kick, a blocked punt. So it really was a 10-9 game if you really look at it. Uh, Of course, you can't be that simplistic. But the bottom line is that's what the injury index does. Uh, You're able to factor in the health of a team or a scheme or a player, et cetera. Or the week before where we're saying all four of the Browns starting secondary were going to be out of the game most likely. They were listed as questionable. One of the four was listed as out. Three of them listed as questionable. And we went on to say, hey, the likelihood is all of them won't play. And uh, obviously, uh, there are ramifications there. But that's what the injury index is. Please go take a look 
and I'd love to hear some feedback on what you think here. But in the meantime here, let's uh, take a break, quick break here and we'll come back with uh, Brady Quinn. This is the Pro Football Doc Podcast with Dr. David Schell. Well, that horn signals the uh, start of part two of the Pro Football Doc Podcast, our guest segment here. Very pleased to have on this next guest because he is everywhere. He is now on the Pro Football Doc Podcast, but he's on Sirius all the time. He's on Fox all the time. He's on CBS stuff all the time. He does college. He does pro. The one and only uh, Brady Quinn. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dr. Chow. Thanks for, for having me on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You know, uh, I see you everywhere all the time. Yeah, I can't imagine uh, also with your family life and everything, how you how you keep good balance. I mean, there isn't anything that you don't do. Well, I, I don't get much sleep. So that is my, my sleep is really what's sacrificed it at all. Um, but I try to see, obviously, my, my girls. I have two little girls. And be with my wife as much as I can, uh, but they obviously realize that uh, they have to sacrifice a little bit, as I have to sacrifice a little bit during um, football season. Um, and, and obviously, there's a little bit more of an expanded off season where we get to have more fun and hang out more together. Well, and and you have one big distinct advantage over me. I've got little kids too, as some of my listeners know. I have uh, twins, boy girl twins that are six six, and a little girl that's two. And the, the problem is I'm way older than you are, not as energetic <laughs> as you are. Well, they keep you young then, right? They'll keep you active. They'll keep you young, especially when you have uh, young kids if you are a little bit older. Yeah, and uh, until you run into some friends. And uh, I remember when I was skiing this offseason, ran into a professor of orthopedics, friend of mine on the ski slopes and he goes and I point out the kids and he goes he goes yeah my grandkids are here too I'm like yeah no those are mine <laughs> <laughs> all good though all good so uh lots going on this season since you're uh immersed in football and whatever what'd you think on the uh on the Josh Allen hit uh and the the slide not slide or I don't know if you heard about Tom Brady's comments what, any thoughts on that yeah, so I, I, I didn't necessarily hear uh, Tom Brady's comments on it. I, I think mine, just watching the game, watching the play itself, um, you know, does it fall within the guidelines where the officials could have potentially felt like they would have ejected Jonathan Jones? Yes, and that's the tough part because it's, it's a little bit subjective. And I think when you watch Vontaze Burfecht do it um, in Oakland versus Jack Doyle, uh, you know his history, you know what type of player he is, and, and I don't care what the officials are told going into the game – whether or not they believe everyone has a clean slate, they know to look for it with him. And, and so I think it's a little bit easier when you see that sort of play as, as egregious and as bad as it was um, to, to eject him and make that call. You know, Jonathan Jones is a little bit harder. You know, I, I believe it was, um, you know, there's another defender on Josh Allen's back. You know, he, he went head first. He doesn't really get the same protection as sliding feet first. But that's also on the quarterback a little bit. Um, and so you, you, you try to take that into account, I think. But um, still – it didn't look like because Jonathan Jones had a clear path to Josh Allen, it didn't look like he tried to alter his course at all on his way to making helmet to helmet contact. And really, you know, to me kind of, you know, getting his shoulder into it as well. So uh, that one could have very easily been an injection as well. I was surprised he wasn't. Um, and, and I'm surprised to this point, I don't believe we've heard that he's gotten fined either for it, but, uh, I guess that could still come out here later on today, but either way, um, as much as you want to put on a quarterback, I, I do think we're trying to remove those sorts of hits out of the league. And unless we take a really, really 
you know, tough approach to even ones that we feel like are in the gray area, uh, I don't know that we're going to eliminate all those hits. Yeah, so uh, in terms of perfect, he's, quote, being suspended for the season. Your thumbs up on that, in agreement with that? Yeah, especially considering a guy who was popped for four games, both in 2016, 2017, for these sort of hits. And so this has been in his past or it's in his history. They've warned him numerous times. John Runyon talked about that in a letter um, that he had sent to Burfecht telling him about the suspension. But he's also appealed and he's got his suspension reduced. So there's there's the potential of this maybe getting reduced as well. And maybe it's only eight or ten games considering in the past he's only served four game suspensions. Yeah, and, and to me, look, launching the whole thing on Burfecht wasn't great. But the worst look was blowing kisses and other things. I mean, not showing any remorse. I, I get heat of the moment type plays. I mean, I didn't play football like you did. And I, I understand things can happen, but that stuff. And, and as far as the, as far as the, uh, the Josh Allen hit, I mean, I have a little more compassion for the defender there. Certainly a bad look to momentarily stand over Josh Allen. But, I mean, I kind of look at that and I think Jones, the defender, was just happy he didn't get run over. Right. I mean, Josh Allen's way yeah, bigger I, than he is. <laughs> I think that's that that's kind of part of the the issue too with Jonathan Jones is is as much as he's on the attack, so is Josh Allen. He's out there. He's a big quarterback. He, he he's he'd taken off and run earlier in that game. He tends to be a pretty physical runner when he does take off, um, and you know that's that's part of his game. And, and he does talk a fair amount of trash out there on the field. You can see uh, Josh Allen spirited at times when he comes close to a defender. So uh, I think that's the difficulty too in that particular game and making that call because, again, you're dealing with a quarterback that is bigger than the player who's tackling him and hitting him. And I think much like the discussion we've had in past years about Cam Newton and him not getting as much protection, it's probably a similar discussion with Josh Allen. Uh, he's just a player who's, who's bigger than most of the guys who are going to be hitting him in the second level. And because of that, we may not view it quite the same, almost similar to Hackashack, right? Shaq wasn't get all the yeah. same calls that maybe a skinnier, you know, center that wasn't as, as big and as strong and muscular as him would be. Um, LeBron faces that same thing. So I, I think those kind of fall in line sometimes with how officials look at the game and how we look at the game from the outside um, with the, how those guys are impacted, whether it's in this, in this case of football uh, and a legal hit or in that case, you know, fouls and those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. So to catch you up, uh, Tom Brady said and was quoted saying that, look, uh, actually against Buffalo early in his career, and there's internet video of it circulating around on my timeline, where he literally gets his head taken off, his helmet goes flying 10, 15 yards down the field. And uh, after that, Brady said, Belichick said to him, look, uh, you need to go out of bounds or slide. And uh, that's not what you're paid to do, basically. And uh, Brady said from then on, he looked at availability as one of his best features. And uh, he doesn't do that anymore. And uh, <laughs> Well, it's, it's easier know. for him to say that too when he doesn't have another option, okay? Josh Allen's a really good athlete, a really good runner. And, and we saw that <laughs> in last year as a rookie. So uh, it's easy for Tom Brady to say, what else is he going to do? He can't run really well. He, he ran like, what, a 5-0-40 when he came into the league? So... Um, that story sounds all good in theory, but if you're on a lesser talented Buffalo Bills team, and if you're not quite as accurate of a passer, and that's part of your skill set that makes you effective, then it's hard then to just turn that off and say, okay, I'm going to be a pocket passer. I brought up Cam Newton earlier, but he's another guy who's been beat up over the years, and he's trying to make this transition to just be a pure pocket passer. Well, it's, it's not as easy to do, you know, as far as becoming a much more accurate or an elite level accurate quarterback like a Tom Brady. 
And so a lot of times you've got to rely on that skill set to, to make you one of the best in the game. And if you don't have that, it takes away a huge piece of your offense. And I think it would for Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills if all of a sudden he wasn't a running threat anymore. I mean, it changes how defenses play him. Now, you you make a good point there. I mean, uh, I've said often on this podcast, look, uh, if you stay in the pocket, very few injuries happen in the pocket. They almost always happen outside the pocket. Although early in the season was a little bit of an aberration with Drew Brees, maybe Big Ben, Nick Foles was in the pocket when it when it happened. It's, you know, when you get outside the pocket, look at yesterday, J- Trubisky and uh, Allen, uh, Josh Allen there, when the injuries happen, be it to Carson Wentz or, I, or to Jimmy Garoppolo last year, et cetera. I would look at it this way. I would say in the pocket or not in the pocket, the longer you hold on to the football, most mm-hmm. likely there's greater likelihood of you getting hurt. Um, and the reason why I say that is I, did, I had a Liz Frank injury uh, when I had a keeper. I was actually on a run play, and it was just a straight, um, you know, naked with no pass option on it. The player landed on my foot on the way out of bounds, obviously out of the pocket in that instance. But I also broke my right index finger and I had to have pins put in it, and I was in the pocket. Uh, but I, we got pressure from Marcus Stroud against the Buffalo Bills, and ended up hitting my hand off his helmet as I was falling through on a throw. So um, to me, I, I think the, the durability more is more important than ability is, is true, but it also tends to lend itself to the quarterbacks who get rid of the football fastest. Those guys tend to not absorb those hits in the pocket, and it tends to be the guys who hold on the football the longest that end up suffering just brutal hits, whether even in the pocket or out of the pocket. No, I think that's true, that, that internal clock. I mean, look, uh, Phillip Rivers – is the guy with the longest uh, starting quarterback streak in the NFL, and he's probably inversely proportionate, uh, least fleet of foot out of almost all the quarterbacks, even maybe slower than Tom Brady. <laughs> <You> <laughs> I don't know. know. It's getting up there. It's <laughs> well, it, since I reconstructed Phillip's knee, he's faster now. No, just kidding. There, there I mean, no. There I mean, <laughs> <laughs> look, look. Uh, you know, when you're measuring by the sundial, now obviously. Brady, Rivers, all these guys are like 10 times faster than I was, including when I was their age. But still, you know, on a relative scale, the defenders close fast is the bottom line. Like like Gardner Minshew yesterday, that third quarter touchdown where that was a video game, right? And he went right, left, back, forward. I mean, that is crazy. But nine times out of 10, you're crushed or there's a sack strip fumble on that. It's not a touchdown nine times out of 10. He got away with it, but that was amazing, that play. Well, and, and the lesson to be learned as far as quarterback plays, you don't have to be fast. Um, you don't even have to be quick. You have to be sudden, and there's a difference. So you know, even someone who doesn't have a ton of fast twitch muscle fibers can still, you know, they can move slow, but when they do speed up, it to be a, a lot faster, right? It's like a guy who throws 85 miles per hour over the plate as a pitcher, and all of a sudden his changeup looks just like his fastball, but now it's at 65. That's going to throw a batter off, even though he doesn't really overpower you with speed in the first place. So it's, it's kind of similar to um, with a quarterback who's in the pocket. As long as you can be sudden and you can catch people kind of off guard, uh, you can make some people miss. And I think Gardner Minshew has that, that sort of ability and then, you know, also to go back to Tom Brady, he's probably one of the – I don't think anyone would confuse him with the terms quick or fast, but he is very, very sudden when he does decide to move. It's deliberate, and it's and it catches, I think, a lot of people off guard uh, with how sudden it is when he moves. No, I think you make a great point, and part of it is their ability to anticipate what the coming move is, right? And uh, that certainly would be a, a big part of it. One other thing, since we're talking physical attributes and quarterbacks and so forth – 
I want to point out, I don't know if you saw, seemed to get a lot of social media play this morning, Deshaun Watson and how he handled himself at the press conference and how he broke down coverage and why he couldn't throw deep. Uh, it seemed to be, to me, whenever asked, what's the better attribute to me, whether it's uh, being physically arm strength, big, strong, number one, or mentally in the 99th plus, plus percentile. I've always said mental rather than physical kind of thing. And I was surprised at how it seemed people were shocked at how well Deshaun Watson explained what he was facing in coverage and why he could only throw certain throws. To me, I mean, that's almost every quarterback, isn't it? Or, I mean, at least NFL quarterback. You, you can't make it in the league even as a third-string backup without having those mental abilities. Am I, am I wrong there? No, you're right. I mean, look, you have to have both, right? You have to have the physical mental. And I would actually argue that, you know, the, the physical gets you there. So, you know, you have to have a certain amount okay. of physical ability okay. in order to even have a shot at the league. So that gets you in the door. And then there's some guys who obviously have immense physical ability and then not very much mental ability. And, and those guys get shots, but usually eventually the, the league eats them up, chews them out, and spits them out. And then there's those guys who have just enough physical ability and then are uber, uber smart and, and can process and understand the game and understand the weaknesses of a defense and can exploit that. You know, those guys tend to be able to last uh, a little longer and they can be great backups and they can last a really, really long time in the league. And if they find themselves in the right team in a starting position, they can be really, really successful. But they need a lot out around them. It's just it's very seldom you find the quarterbacks that have an elite level of both. And that's where the, the types of, you know, Andrews and obviously Tom Brady and, and those guys start to kind of come into the mix. I think Patrick Mahomes falls in that category as a young quarterback now. And, and, and Deshaun Watson, uh, he, he can fall into that category too. I think people underestimate um, the type of impact he's had since he's gotten into the league so far too. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, I think the thing that allows most quarterbacks in the NFL to take that next leap or huge step is their ability to process information uh, at a rapid pace and be able to handle uh, chaotic situations in, in relatively uh, calm, uh, a relatively calm, poised manner. Like that is what playing quarterbacks all about. It's like being a fireman and going into a burning building and being able to do your job, execute, get in, get what you need out, and and obviously not get burned and not uh, subject anyone to pain. Like that's that's kind of what it is. Like you're standing around a ring of fire in that pocket. And you've got to make good decisions uh, every single play throughout the course of the game, throughout the course of the season. Uh, no, no, no question there. And the other thing is I see a lot of uh, young quarterbacks having some temporary success, right? But very few get to Brady or, you know, Breeze or, or Rivers or, you know, long-term success. And I think part of that is, you know, they obviously all have talent to get there. And a coach can develop a good game plan around them. But then when you're on film after a couple of games, not only the mental fatigue, but can you continue to adjust? It's like you mentioned baseball. There are a lot of pitchers who can get guys out the first time through the order, right? But the second time, and what about the third time through the order? You know, what else do you have different? How much do you think that plays into it? I think it plays a huge role, and to be honest with you, I think that's the biggest concern I have for all of these future um, – I shouldn't say future – all these young quarterbacks right now in the NFL that – 
we're looking at being future of the NFL, taking over for the Tom Brady's, the Drees's, the um, you know Philip Rivers and and uh, Aaron Rodgers of the world, like the, the next wave. And it's because, for example, with Baker Mayfield, now he did improve upon this in the past week, but you know, looking at him the first three games of the season, a lot of the things that I think are bad habits that aren't ingrained in you in high school and in college anymore because of so many shotgun formations and, and so many spread offenses that don't really teach you about the defense and how are you trying to attack the defense. That's more of NFL. Um, you know, I, I think he's kind of struggled where he came into the NFL at this point where he could set the rookie touchdown record and, and he could be accurate and he could take chances and take shots and he could move around enough and get away with it. And then coming into the next year, it's like, well, you've got all this talent around you now, but how have you grown? How have you changed? Because now they're going to rush you to make you feel like you can escape. But really, that's what they want you to do. They want you to roll out to that side or cut off half the field and escape out of the pocket that way, you know, only to then wrap a guy back around in their pass rush to either sack you or force you to, you know, to throw the football away or make a poor decision. And so all these things happen over the course of your career as you play, and it all reverts back to this. This game is all about playing from the pocket. It's, all, it's an anticipatory game. You have to be able to understand you know, what a defense is trying to accomplish, how you can exploit that defense, where their weaknesses are, or where the matchup is that you can try to give yourself a chance. And, and that's the time-tested way of playing the game of football in the NFL. And there's not enough guys that – have the fundamentals as far as timing and rhythm from the shotgun, which is hard to do sometimes when you're under center, it's much easier because everything in a West coast offense, for example, coincides with your footwork and then the timing of the routes on the outside. When you get in shotgun, it throws it off because of the snap itself. And so all those things, you have to figure out the timing and rhythm of that play in order to have that eternal clock in order to have the anticipatory skills and be able to play from within the pocket. So, those are things that are just fundamentally you don't see as much for guys coming out of college anymore. And because of the cut down off season where you don't have quarterback school, for example, um, like we used to have back when you'd come back to, to practice in March, which is now April, you don't go over those things where you drop back, drop back, drop back, you know, so often that everyone's icing their groin in March because you're doing, you know, hundred to 150 dropbacks trying to get down the timing and rhythm of your footwork with the reads at every play. Um, you just don't see that as much anymore. So there, there's a bit of a transition that's going on right now in the NFL, and I'm just kind of wondering how it's going to play out in the next five, six years. Well, I think another part of that transition is the transition for offensive linemen because these young quarterbacks are so good in, in their passing game and their shotgun and their seven-on-seven seven stuff and their passing leagues. And the offensive line, so they don't play with the offensive linemen as often throughout the year, but also the offensive linemen don't block like in the NFL. From, dif from different sets and different schemes. And so when they get to the NFL, I think that kind of comes into play, the pressure that comes from it, and to know where the pressure is coming it, from. It's the biggest mismatch in the field right now. You know, if you go look at a youth level, you know, and in junior high and high school, you know what happens to the kids who are really, really athletic that can run and jump and cut and be able to change direction? If they don't have good hand-eye coordination, which, you know, some of them don't. I live in South Florida, so... Um, you see a lot of this when you do youth football camps. They go to DB. They go to become an edge rusher. Why? Because every one of those kids that comes from, let's just say, for example, in this in this scenario, a, a bad background, right, where, where they're trying to figure out a way so they can go play in the NFL and, and hit it big, you know, they know that those edge rushers and those DBs now 
make a lot of money. And, and they know that they're playing more nickel packages than ever, more dime packages than ever. So if you can be a DB, there's six of those guys on the field nowadays more often than not, or, or five of them on the field more often than not. You know, those edge rushers too, they're putting them in more and more, especially on third down or must-pass situations. You might have four defensive ends in the game, right, that are rushing. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's prioritized in the NFL. So those guys are elite-level athletes now. And the best athletes are going there. They're not going to play on the offensive line, for example. To the point you talked about, a lot of seven-on-seven leagues, less contact football at a young age. So a lot of these kids coming up, in particular on the West Coast. The West Coast, you're seeing a drop in numbers for a lot of offensive linemen. And it's a systematic issue for teams on the West Coast just in recruiting at a college level. Um, You just don't see as many of those guys coming out from high school and college football anymore from the West Coast to make it to the NFL that are linemen. And so that's a systematic issue. So not only do you have the gap of talent and ability versus uh, just lesser numbers, but then you have less time that you're practicing now, a lot of those schemes, a lot of the skills. You know, you have offenses that are running more shotgun spread where they're moving laterally or backwards, which is not what you're going to be doing in the NFL. They still run the football, and they always will. Those, those tools and traits aren't taught quite as much. And then finally, you know, the quarterbacks are partially to blame. The quarterbacks haven't made these, you know, the job of these these guys any easier. You know, I, I've watched time and time again, and it irks me. The number one thing that ticks me off about quarterback play right now is none of these guys know how to throw the football away. None of them. And I don't know if it's a product of seven on seven, and because of what's been ingrained in their heads in regards to stats, and not wanting to hurt their completion percentage or not wanting to hurt their quarterback rating. But these young quarterbacks now will run out of the back of the pocket to the right or left, cut the field in half more so than ever before. And half the time they're, they're trying to then scramble to get back to the line of scrimmage and they run out of bounds for a two or three, four yard loss. It, it makes me go absolutely insane because it goes down on the sack, even though that's all on the quarterback because they don't want to throw the football away. And, and none of them learn to step up in the pocket or avoid a rush, move right or left, then step up. Those tools that you have as a quarterback that aren't being taught or aren't being utilized as much anymore. And I think, that puts more pressure too on on offensive linemen right now. So it's uh it, it's a big issue, and I think it's going to continue to be an issue as as we move forward. Yeah, and I mean not to harp on this or, or pick on somebody, but it almost could have cost the Saints the game. Teddy Bridgewater taking that big sack, just throw it away. You got the field goal, and you got to make the Cowboys score a touchdown. Thankfully, it didn't matter, but uh, you can't take that sack there. You got to throw the ball away. Brady, look, it, we, it's it's funny. It's an art, right? And, and for whatever reason, like. It's just something that's not being talked about enough in quarterback play. But it's those small differences in the game, those small details that can, that can especially in the NFL level, when, when the margins are thin, that can change the difference between a win and a loss sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Brady, we could talk to you for an hour, but I know your time is limited. We're already over on the 15 minutes. I really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate your giving me the chance to sort of mini turn the tables. Usually you're asking me questions on different things. Appreciate the time here. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back for the final segment of the ProFootball.podcast. If you found $100 on the street and nobody was around to claim it, would you take it? Of course you would. So why do you keep picking winners without getting something for it? That's why you should head to MyBookie. It's fast, it's easy, and they pay when you win at MyBookie.ag. Let's face it. Where you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on. It's also important to be confident when you're betting. You're losing your original wager? Time to hedge at halftime? MyBookie offers a full menu of in-game bets. And if you like to bet a little to win a lot, check the parlays. 
And if that's not enough, this is more than enough. Join now and MyBookie will double your first deposit up to $1,000. Use the promo code ProFootballDoc to activate the offer. Again, MyBookie.ag and the promo code ProFootballDoc. MyBookie. You play. You win. You get paid. More now with Dr. David Chow, the pro football doc. All right, welcome back to the Pro Football Doc Podcast. Brady was fun there, Greg. I mean, I enjoyed talking to him. We could have chatted for longer. Absolutely. Um, he is absolutely terrific. So many people say that, oh, some of these guys that are former athletes just get this job because they're former athletes. But you can tell he's a natural at giving analysis on football in general, and he is absolutely terrific. Yeah, and you know, I actually don't, it's very nice of him to come on. I really don't know him very well. He's interviewed me once or twice in Sirius or something, but you know, I've, I'd see him at Super Bowls and different things and always friendly and he just is a nice guy, you know, it'd be, uh, you know, a, a, a good guy to, to get to know better. And I'm glad he uh, did that for us here. Appreciate that. Absolutely. So let's do the rundown here. Let's run through quarterbacks first. And of course, Mitch Trubisky, the news is out. I mean, I always find it good fun that I'm not being critical of Matt Nagy or, or any coach, but yeah, we don't know anything about our quarterback. Uh, yeah, no, you're just not saying what you already know. <laughs> and, uh, of course, Adam Schefter now has reported it, but kind of what we were saying, Greg, yesterday in game that Trubisky dislocated his shoulder, likely tore his labrum, is going to miss some time. He's going to travel to London, but unlikely to play. Then there's the bye week. And then I believe strongly that Trubisky will play week seven with a harness or a strap and get surgery at the end of the season. So missing, uh, you know, it was third play of the game, as we talked about with uh, Brady there, out of the pocket, dive, you know, stripped, dove, fell on an outstretched arm on my Twitter timeline and and at profootballdoc.com. I got pictures and video of it and dislocated his shoulder. It was what it looked like there. The good news is it's not season ending because it's not his throwing shoulder. So there is Mitch Trubisky, Josh Allen. Look, uh, there's a few concussions uh, yesterday uh, and uh, Sunday. But statistically, well, about a third at most of players return without missing the next week. The likelihood is Josh Allen will miss a week. And then I think he has a bye too. So then he will be should be back after that. But always hard to judge concussions. Gardner Minshew, take note of this. By video, late in the fourth quarter, he, in the pocket, got a mild high ankle sprain. This is He finished the game limping a little bit, was not in a boot, which is good, but he may miss some practice time. I think he's going to play this Sunday, but this is much more of a Pat Mahomes week one high ankle sprain, who obviously Mahomes has played through, than it is a Saquon Barkley one where he's missing time or an A.J. Green one, and we'll talk about both those guys. Then Sam Darnold has been cleared for non-contact practice, which means maybe his spleen hasn't gone back to normal size yet. At least he can start working out and getting back in shape in the rigors of football and getting his energy level back. This means he's not playing this week, uh, although I suppose in theory the chances that are there that he can't. We're looking at mid-October here, maybe late October for Darnold. And on the other hand, Drew Brees with his thumb, You saw him on the sidelines of the Dallas game, really bending, straightening his thumb, moving it, shaking hands before the game. He's coming along well. Greg, right on track for six weeks. 
I think he's making it. Um, this is what I thought all along, and he's doing quite well. Let's move on to running back. Saquon Barkley says he's going to beat the timelines. My question is, what timelines? Uh, if we are talking the two-week timeline where he missed two games when he was a freshman at Penn State, not going to happen. If you're talking uh, A.J. Green, eight-week initial timeline, yeah, I think so. Uh, I guess he's out of a boot. From the start, I thought Saquon was four to six weeks. I still think he's four to six weeks. I think he's closer to four than six at this point in time, but that still is the general estimate. He's not playing this next week. If he's super lucky, he could return at three weeks. But that four-week target is starting to look realistic, and that's good news. And I'm glad players are optimistic about things like that. And so Saquon hopefully will be back at the four-week mark rather than six-week mark. Getting lots of questions on Marlon Mack. He left with an ankle. But some of that was also coaching decision. He said after the game he could have continued, but they were in an all-passing mode playing catch-up against the Raiders. Here's another thing if you look at injury index, Greg. How many teams, Greg, do you think can survive if in a given week four of their top players, the two best offensive players and two best defensive players, were not playing? How many teams can leave with a W? I mean, okay, let's 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 take the Patriots, right? They're the gold standard. If Tom Brady and Julian Edelman were out and Kyle Van Noy and Stefan Gilmore were out, how, would the Patriots come away with a with a W? Against the Redskins and the Dolphins, maybe. If they're facing a real team like maybe the Minnesota Vikings or something like that, no. <laughs> well, maybe maybe uh, maybe uh, Sunday's Minnesota Vikings, they would have they didn't look so good. <laughs> but that's a whole other story there. My point is, that's what the Colts did. Andrew Luck, whose retirement was due to injury, clearly their best player in offense. Their second best, or their, their, their top two, T.Y. Hilton was out. And on the defensive side, their stud linebacker, Darius Leonard, still with concussion. And Malik Hooker, their stud safety with the knee scope. Their injury index was downgraded, and it's not a shock. Look, I wasn't calling that the Raiders would win, but I was like, ooh, there's, you know, this might be more of a game than you think. You know, road underdogs, I think the Raiders were, what, six and a half, and they won outright. I don't know what the plus number was, but on the on the pick in the side. But in any case, that's kind of what we're talking about there. Moving on to wide receiver. Uh, A.J. Green, news came that, uh, as kind of what we've been saying all along, he's not that close. He wasn't going to play in September. It's October. And Adam Schefter came out and said it might even be a couple weeks into October. He's getting there. He's out of a boot. But at this point, you know, uh, he's not playing week five. Lucky to play week six. Maybe gets there week seven or eight. But that's still better than injured reserve because he would have missed the first eight games and played for the first time week nine. So, uh, at least he's getting closer there, A.J. Green. T.Y. Hilton, we just talked about him a little bit, but he heard it here first. I don't think he's playing this this coming week either. I think he needs to get fully right. And with after the week five game, week six is a bye for the Colts. I think it's going to be too enticing for the Colts to say, T.Y., let's get you 100% healthy. Let's not rush things for this week. Let's give you two more additional weeks, and let's come back gangbusters after the uh, week six bye for week seven and beyond. Godwin, who is a question mark, 
boy, he had a big game. <laughs> so much for question marks. Let's see. Tyreek Hill, seen running around in pregame, running routes, looking good. Yeah, but remember, his injury was not to his legs or to his muscles in his lower body. Remember, this was, in hockey terms, an upper body injury, not lower body. So he runs around and he's fine. But the question is, can he land on that shoulder, that SC joint? And you can't have it dislocating again. That's why I still think initial timeline four to six, but was closer to six. And I still maintain closer to six. So I still think he's a few weeks away, even though he's running around well. But we'll see. And then the and then your Packers, Devontae Adams, personal record, 180 yards catching and didn't play the last two series with a right turf toe. It's a milder sprain, no surgery needed. That's good. But I kind of still st- stick by what I said on Thursday. This is a multi-week injury. Now, I will admit, on Thursday, when I said multi-week, that could have been multi as in six or eight weeks. But right now, multi as in two or three, I still think it's multi. I don't think he plays this next week, even with the 10 days of rest leading up to the next game. And uh, maybe a, a week after that. But hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully he can. You really need your big toe to be able to, to cut, et cetera. And I have to throw this in here. You said he had 108 yards. He had 180. 180. No, no. I Well, I, then I misspoke. I was, in my mind, I said 180. I probably slurred or, you know, whatever. Don't have enough broadcast training, enunciation. Training. Oh, it is all good. Yes, 180. I have to yards. give proper credit to my Green Bay Packers. Yeah, and, and, and Aaron Rodgers had 422 yards passing. Now, not to harp on the injury index, but we've been saying all season on the injury index that the Eagles, the Packers opponent, are really beat up at cornerback. And for this week, Ronald Darby, who had been playing but not playing well, injured a hamstring coming off his ACL. And then during the game, Sidney Jones, I think, left with a hamstring. So they were down. I mean, they were down past first stringers, second stringers. They're into third and fourth stringers and starting practice squad and street guys. And according to the injury index with the Packers passing game health and the pass defense lack of health for the Eagles, obviously the Eagles still won the game, but that's not what the injury index is all about. I mean, doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that Aaron Rodgers 422 yards passing on Thursday wasn't a fluke especially with Aaron Rodgers being who he is, and Devontae Adams with a personal record 180 yards is was not a fluke either. You know, honestly, if he's able to be in there for the final two drives, maybe it's a different outcome. But uh, that was too bad there. Moving on to tight end, the poor Chargers are down to their fourth tight end. Hunter Henry out, Virgil Green out, Sean Culkin tore his Achilles on a reception near the goal line. So he's done for the season. So they're going to have to bring up somebody else. And uh, hopefully Hunter Henry's getting close. And Virgil Green isn't long, but the Chargers continue to be beat up. And we talked about TJ Hawkinson. Don't leave your feet. And hopefully he recovers from his concussion well. On the defensive side of the ball, the big, big bad news, Bradley Chubb. Surprise ACL tear. Apparently some word that he may have torn it or partially torn it with about 14 minutes to go in the game. Limped, came off. Well, the timeline really is this. About three minutes left in the third quarter, he had some cramps on the left side. You could see him being stretched. He uh, ostensibly went into the locker room for an IV. Then he came back 
about 14 minutes to go in the fourth quarter, misstepped while he was engaged, limped off the field, the same left side. That's probably where he tore his ACL. And it's possible because his muscles, especially his hamstrings that were cramping before, were not firing strongly or in a timely manner because that can help protect against an ACL. But in any case, that's likely where he tore his ACL. And Vic Fangio said he tore it during the game and or partially tore it during the game and continued to play and play well and even had a uh, strip sack caused a fumble that almost won the game with about a minute to go. He knocked the ball out of Gardner Minshew's hand, but they were the Jaguars were able to recover. And then Bradley Chubb said he was surprised when he woke up, woke up so sore and swollen this morning, but apparently he tore his ACL. Partials are not very common. Probably tore it completely, and uh, I have respect for the uh, Broncos medical staff, so I'm sure there was some story, and we'll get the story eventually, but I would be super surprised if there was anything that was, wasn't supposed to happen medically. They've got good doctors and good athletic trainers. Heck, Greek's been with them forever. Um, they do a really good job, but his season is done, unfortunately. And same thing with the Jaguars and Broncos game, if you look at the injury index. Greg, you know, one of the sayings that we say in football always is, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. So do you know who the Broncos' top three free agent signings this offseason were? Joe Flacco was certainly one of them. Well, not by money. (laughs) Okay. Uh, By money, it was Bryce Callahan. Ew. Hasn't played yet this season. Out this week. Jawan James, right tackle. Out with a knee this week. And their other DB, I'm blanking on his name right now. I'll think of it later. Maybe you'll help me out. But in any case, he was also out this game. Once again, a Denver team that wasn't really high-flying made three key improvements. All three of those guys are out. And uh, they ended up giving up a close game at home to the Jaguars. Uh, not saying that that's all injury-based, but I'm just saying that's a factor to consider. Uh, other bad news, uh, Ryan Connolly. Unfortunately, my video thoughts or impressions were correct. The Giants linebacker, who was really coming into his own, tore his ACL and is done for the year. And probably the most grotesque injury of the day, I don't even know how to say his last name, linebacker for Tampa Bay, Jack, C-I-C-H-Y. Vicky, I didn't yeah. want to butcher that. I'll let you take that. He's a Wisconsin guy. Oh, there you go. Uh, then you should know. Uh, right elbow dislocation, possible radial head fracture. Uh, he's not necessarily done for the season, uh, but uh, we'll wait for their announcement there. Any other questions or anything, Greg? Uh, there are quite a few people asking about the status of Todd Gurley and what are your thoughts are on him. Greg, do you drink soda or do you drink pop? I actually am not much of a soda or a pop drinker, but... At the same time, when I was in Wisconsin, they actually typically called it pop. And so if you have a cold and you blow your nose, do you use Kleenex or do you use facial tissue? Kleenex. Okay. Does it matter? My my point not at all. My point is it is what it is. I look, I respect the heck out of Sean McVay. But to say that they're not load managing Todd Gurley, I mean, doesn't even pass the smell test. They clearly are. We talked about it in this podcast all offseason. He's no longer a bell cow running back. He's still really good. He still tops. He's still very effective. 
but they're not going to give him 20 or 25 carries in a, in week in, week out. Maybe one game. Look, it seems like they're saving him, right? So they'll have him for the playoffs healthy at the end of the year. He only got five carries. But, look, that's not the end all because they were behind. Tampa was blowing him out. So they had to – they couldn't run Todd Gurley as much anymore. The, the, the flow of the game changed. But Todd Gurley is no more than 15 carries on a routine routine basis, kind of 12 to 15 area. He's not practicing three times a week. It's load management. Now, my guess is when Sean McVay said, we're not doing load management, I mean, what's he calling it? Veteran rest? Todd Gurley time? I mean, whatever he's calling it, that's clearly what they're doing. And that's why I said soda versus pop. Does it make a difference what you call it? It still is what it is. Kleenex versus facial tissue. It is what it is. They're clearly doing that. But Sony Michelle has arthritis and has been doing fine. So Todd Gurley, don't write him off, but he's just not your fantasy number one guy anymore. That's all. So let's close out with the beast of the week. And this one's pretty obvious. Bradley Chubb, you return to play on a partially or wholly torn ACL. You get, you cause a fumble that almost wins your team the game. Hands down, you're the beast of the week there, Bradley Chubb, and best wishes on a recovery from your ACL there moving forward. Well, that's it for this week, Greg, and uh, thank you for joining us. Special thanks to Brady Quinn, and thanks to all of you guys for listening. Appreciate the reviews and telling friends, and I'm serious. Look at the website and, uh, and tweet at me what you think. If you don't like it, we're all ears. This is why it's free. We want to get feedback. We want to learn from it. And uh, tell us what you like and uh, don't like going forward there. But thank you again for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.